fit into our ideal story. They certainly don't fit into um, what the um, the indigenous stories. I know the idea of the hero in the in the Western sense doesn't seem to exist. Mm. I mean, the term hero can be very subjective as okay. well. Like lots of people have different definitions of it. Like you know, your typical Superman sort of hero, or like kind of your neighbor next door sort mm. of hero. Mm. Like kind of depends. Yeah. On each person of whether the story needs a hero or not, I guess. Yeah. Well, the, the whole Superman type hero and even the concept of Superman itself, that's some intense Nietzsche stuff yeah. there. Nietzsche um, is really arising out of a really weird period of philosophy in those Germanic regions. Um, yeah. Not so long ago. Yeah. And of uh, course, if you think about, um, about, um, various Dreamtime stories across Australia, Dreamtime being a very um, raw, uh, fraught word anyway, um, being a very bad word to understand our stories. But the, all those stories um, often involve, you know, for example, a hero who walks across the land and then turns into a tree. Now, how does that fit the European narrative of a hero? You can't really fit the story mm. of someone who, who walks along and turns into a mountain to keep an eye on his people into the Joseph Campbell's hero journey idea. Well, especially because usually our ancestors everywhere in land-based cultures, your ancestors that had turned into landforms, they were usually at the time, it wasn't from being a hero, it was from doing the wrong thing. True. It's a punishment as a general rule. So yeah. you uh, Yeah. Um, yeah, my friend Anthony McKnight, uh, he stood on a beach with me at Wollongong once and told me the story um, there, those, uh, <laughs> of the mountains there and the sisters and um, everything that went on there. There were no, there were no heroes in that story, no. but still it's a good story. And it's, um, it's about an identity of place an identity of uh, community and clan and family is what's formed there. If you think about the, um, the classic, um, you know, the most, commonly known story from um, that spreads across Aboriginal culture right across the country, the, the story of the Seven Sisters. Mm. There's no hero in that. There's a, a villainous protagonist and a bunch of kind of fleeing women. That's got no hero. Mm. Um, and it has no beginning or, or acceptable ending in a, in a Western sense. Yeah. I remember years ago, I had a, um, I, was a, I was doing a writers' festival event and a bunch of people were talking about this. Um, people were talking about um, Aboriginal story and there was, some white woman said that she wanted to rewrite the story of the Seven Sisters, but with a happy ending. And she got really offended and really upset. We said, well, firstly, that's not your story. And secondly, what? Why would you even want to Yeah, that? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. A massage can have a happy ending. Stories, stories don't. <laughs> Usually, when they're embedded in land and landscapes like that, that that's awful. Yeah, imagine that. There is. Uh, it is still in motion that one because in the because in in bigger cycles of time, periodically that um, that uh, last sister returns home. Yes. So that's that's Pleiades there. Yeah. That's, that's the Pleiades system. Well, the, weird, the weird thing about that is um, in, in Europe as well, the Pleiades are seven sisters mm. and Orion is an old man. 
Yeah. So it's like the seven, the Pleiades of the Seven Sisters and Orion as an old man. Maybe universal. It makes you wonder how old that story really is. I'm one of the dogs that belongs to those those sisters. But I, yeah, it's a it is universal. Everybody calls it that. Even though there aren't there aren't even seven stars there. And it doesn't take a female shape, the um, the constellation. There's nothing in there that could be a sort of a patternicity of people just or everybody seeing the same thing. There's nothing there for you, you know, where you could, uh, you know, just pull a story out about there about seven sisters and the little one always getting left behind for going the wrong way with a man or a man going the wrong way with her. And there's usually a body of water in that story. It's a um, it's a pattern you find in every culture. That same story. It's like everybody knows it. What do you think about that, Lily? I mean, like, I find it very interesting, especially with the no hero, as there's lots of stories that um don't have the typical hero, but there's still like moral lessons and people can learn from the stories or the heroes like perceptions of the heroes change over time. You find that in uh, science fiction too. It's it's really the, the dominant way that narratives happen in this place. Um, you, you got any science fiction stories you're, you're into? I'm not really into science fiction that much. Mm. Like I used to read a lot when I was little, but I don't remember a lot of it. Well, you, you haven't read, you haven't read Terra Nullius or The Old, Old Lie by Claire Coleman. Well, I just yeah. I've been busy studying. I didn't have to focus on that. Yeah. Claire writes uh, Indigenous science fiction. I think we need more Indigenous science fiction. I think um, Indigenous culture lends itself well to science fiction. And I think science fiction lends itself well to Indigenous stories. Mm. In my stories like in Terra Nullius there's no hero not really um some people will say that the story has got some connections to the to the um you know the hero's journey but it's more of a subversion of that idea than uh than uh, utilizing that idea yeah it is I don't think anybody grows and develops and transforms or anything in that story not, not like this. Pe people are just surviving yeah. <laughs> and, and having to having to adapt. But um, well, that's our yeah, story, the, isn't it? Um, yeah. our, story, our, our if you talk, we were talking about old stories. In, if you talk about the think about the new stories mm. um, in contemporary Aboriginal culture, our stories are stories about whose family survived and how, and whose family didn't survive and how. Mm. You think of stories people talking about um, walking. Um, hundreds of kilometers carrying a child to escape a um, escape a violent settle, um, settler like um, station owner. Now those stories are, are common stories in our in our historical narrative. So common, in fact, that it's almost become a um, a um, a trope or a cliche to to talk about this idea of an Aboriginal person on the run from a settlement. Um, and yet, there's no those stories don't have a hero by their nature. They they are um, they are people we can't trying to get free of a bad situation. That doesn't make them a hero. If you think about um, even Follow the Rabbit Roof Fence, based on a true story, there, there's no hero in that book. Mm. Except there yeah. is, but not in a conventional yeah. sense. Yeah, people who do heroic things yes. do admirable things because people do, but they also do bad things, you know. Mm -hmm. 
And the, the, the tracker is doing a bad thing. For the right reasons. But he does he does good things in there too. Uh, to sort of subvert his task. And I think that part of the um I think part of the reason there's so much problem in our society now with the idea of a hero is because we also have problem a problem with the idea of a villain. Because we have problems in in narrative at the moment, the idea of somebody doing bad things for bad reasons. Mm. In, in certainly in, in the history of Australia, in, in our real true stories, and also in our other stories, when people do bad things, it's always for the best of reasons. Mm. And um, that means the idea of someone doing good things for um, for good reasons. When 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 the, when the um, kind of so-called hero is has got the best of reasons for doing what they do, but the so but the so-called villain has also has really good reasons for doing what they're doing. It's hard to draw the line between a, a, a hero and a villain. More like we've got anti-heroes and anti-villains. That's yeah. There was there, there was the the sort of era of the anti anti-hero. Yeah. Uh, there for a, a couple of decades, you know, from about the seventies on. But um, it's things have changed, like, especially Lily. In those uh, superhero movies, things have changed. Yeah. now because it, there's a lot more understanding there for the villain uh, also in science fiction you know the the stormtroopers aren't just you know these sort of masked things that you can just shoot as many as you like anymore you know those stormtroopers have people inside and you take off the mask and it's a person who doesn't really want to be there <laughs> and it's kind of forced to do that you know so you can't just shoot a bunch of stormtroopers without uh without feeling anything anymore um yeah. so i guess things have changed somewhat and they are moving somewhat in the superhero genre and also in the um in the science fiction uh, way of looking at the world is this perhaps any indication of some sort of change or a desire to change in the wider sort of globalizing culture um, that's currently scabbed over this planet like i feel like that is being a change really and more people depending on who the villain is people can identify with them maybe with the motivations and the good reasoning behind the actions but you know leads to the villainous behaviors if you know what i mean um and like you said people are identifying like stormtroopers as actual people and not just figures you know like this emotion mm. and identity that can come with that along with learning experiences if you can identify traits in your of yourself and these characters who aren't considered the hero hmm. i mean yeah yeah i do yeah i really do so you know the joker is somebody with potentially with learning difficulties and a really bad home life um <laughs> who, who has a lot of socioeconomic pressures on his shoulders now and you know it's um yeah, you, you get you get the backstory. It kind of fits the way that that fiction is even seen by publishers now, um, because the the publishers tend to try and encourage people to have relatable here relatable villains, and then I think mm. these days when people talk about the process of writing, they talk more about relatable villains and relatable heroes, because relatable mm. heroes are, are, are kind of important for the story, but people react negatively to a villain who is just kind of 
cackling and insane and, and wants to do bad things. So they, they'd rather have a villain with a backstory that's um, mm. make not a complete and utter bastard. Well, here's something measurable. Maybe um, a relatable villain has to have a mother. It's um, because it's always, you know, the um, in these stories where you have a hero, like all the people they kill and the people they're fighting and struggling against in their enemies. These are all motherless people. You never um, you never see their mother. Um, yeah, but the Joker's got a mum now. Yeah. And he's really struggling to look after her. It, it's interesting because the, the Joker in the, in the recent Joker movie has got more in common with the Joker of the comic books than mm. any of the Jokers previously written about in or previously shown in movies. Because um, the Joker in the comic books has had has is always been a character with kind of a, a rough life that's led him to be the person mm. he is. And um, and well not always, but it's kind of since um, the um, 80s like that and if you, if you watch the um every every batman movie series of movies you know, batman gets rebooted again and again hmm. every time there's a the, the joker is more and more of a relatable character and less and less hmm. just a bastard and i think that just shows how we do things i think if you think about marvel infinity war group of movies um avengers infinity war etc um thanos is more relatable than any of the heroes trying to stop him and, and that kind of says a lot. Well, to me, it's for his reason for wanting to kill a lot of people makes sense. It's bad, it's bad. he hasn't thought it through, his ideas, but it makes sense, the, the idea. But um, he, yeah, he hasn't thought of it, thought, thought through the consequences, but that's, that's what does make it not relatable. And I, I'm, I'm beginning to really dislike um, non unrelatable villains. People are more interesting than stereotypes. Even in, in Science fiction now, where previously it was all characters were all about trying to have um, something that a character that fits your your plot. Well, you know what it's about. You make the character fit mm. the plot. But now I, I think um, there's a stronger drive. This idea of, of characters being people, be it in in fiction or in um, movies or in anything, making the the characters more and more human, whether they're the, the so-called hero or the villain or the protagonist or the antagonist. I think they're better mm. words than the mm. villain. Um, if, if the protagonist um, and the antagonist need to be well fleshed out and be complete people, or the story doesn't work in mm. an emotional um, grounding for a lot of the um, consumers of that story, be they watchers of a movie or readers of a book. That's it. Well, look, um, you look at the the evolution of Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the seventies. You know, he's kicking off with um, uh, with Conan the Barbarian. You know, where he's like, um, um, you know, there's this question, what is best in life? And he basically he does Genghis Khan's words. <laughs> he does a Genghis Khan quote: "Is defeat your enemies, drive them before you, and hear the lamentation of the women." That's that. That was the character there, and he was the hero of the story, which sounds really awful, doesn't it? But that, I mean, now it's he's he's an old man, and he's making I don't know. He makes a lovely movie about a a man who's uh, uh, caring for his daughter while she turns into a zombie. 
and just, uh, you know, about their sort of grief together while she slowly uh, <laughs> turns into a zombie, which is, I don't know, kind of a sweet little science fiction film, that one. I haven't seen that one. I, mm, I can't even remember what it's called, but, um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's very different. And I mean, being a, cop, being, being, a, being a, um, a connoisseur of zombie films like I am, even the mm. the idea of the zombie film has been so changing. Actually, weirdly, is um, zombie films are getting closer now to what the the original zombie film, Neither Living Dead. If they started there, then they went somewhere else, and now they're going back to kind of that idea mm. of feeling a, a kind of almost pity for the zombies and for the situation, mm. rather than being a a bit of a a, a, a shoot 'em up gun fest, which zombie movies became for a while they've started returning back to this idea of, of pathos and mm. of this um this kind of um, this notion of the apocalypse which we don't really look we 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 write a lot there's a lot of books of apocalypse is written but not really any deep thought into what an apocalyptic scenario actually is mm. we don't really think about apocalypse as though we we as um the public love to consume apocalyptic works. And it, it's interesting that we are so in, we have such a love affair with apocalypses without really knowing what they are. Mm. Well, th this continent here, Australia, has been through a lot of apocalypses and yeah. um, there are still the stories here of all of those apocalypses, you know, volcanoes, asteroids, strikes, um, rising sea levels. You know, apocalypses are... Um, uh, apocalypses are survivable. <laughs> they are, and we've yeah. and we survived the most recent one. Uh, in like you know when it was yeah. unquestionably apocalyptic when the white people came. Yeah, the northern hemisphere, um, basically uh, taking over the southern hemisphere and using it to extract resources from and and murdering a lot of people and um, you know putting them in a position where they have to live in third world poverty forever, um, and that. That's what zombie movies are about. So see, that's why originally it was based on that. It comes from the voodoo idea yes. of uh, you know a corpse coming back to life. Um, you know, so it's this kind of you know terror of you know this uh, this Af these African these dark these people on the other side of the equator. Um, you know, eventually. Um, who will want to be um, following all of their resources um, back and finding them and come to get them shuffling across the equator going. So we forget that um, it's, it's, it's not commonly known in Australia. And, and I feel I need often to remind people that War of the Worlds was an analogy for um, the invasion of Australia by the British. It was mm. written explicitly as... It's like the first um, oh. alien invasion science fiction novel was written explicitly to try and explain why Australia was invaded so easily. It wasn't about mm. the British being better than us, without them having bigger guns. And that's what War of the Worlds is about. And um, it's, all, it's, it's kind of known to academia that it's been stated to be about that topic, but it's not known to the public that that's what War of the mm. Worlds is. Mm. And... Um, I wonder what that corroboree would look like. 
chances of anything coming from us <laughs> <laughs> anything <laughs> coming from england <laughs> a million to one yeah I, I love i love that you're singing the um the jeff wayne war of the worlds there because that's one of my favorite albums mm. ever in history of music even though it's even though it's um prog rock and i'm not a fan of prog rock as a whole talking about like apocalypse and like kind of colonization like i don't know if you've seen the recent movie like don't look up it's mm -hmm. like, you know, on Netflix. Um, I feel like that goes into that kind of stuff as well. Because I mean, asteroids gonna destroy the Earth, but major corporations want to use it for its minerals and not save everyone. Kind of like, you know, people invading Australia and other countries um, for the resources and not taking into consideration other people and how you know, the consequences of that can, you know, put people in third world poverty and, mm. you know, the relations less up, if you know what I mean. I feel like more storytelling yeah. today is kind of reflecting like how these events have really affected people and like the effects of global warming and how people, like rich people become richer and then the poorer become poorer. Like, mm. it's good to show that through like even if there's no hero or protagonist in the story how really well storytelling can provide lessons and how it can affect everyone really and how we can fix things before it gets too bad it's interesting to me that the hero's journey in um in older works of fiction and, and an older legend mythology is all about overcoming um, yeah. but over the last 20 years the kind of subconscious hero's journey within the narrative of our society seems to be about surviving not winning just making it through the night if you think about the the change it, it, um there's a whole genre of computer games called survival horror where the idea isn't to win it's just survive and get out of there there's a whole genre of movies mm. where idea is not to not to succeed against the horror but just survive and well the, the cliche phrase is make it through the night that's kind of the that's that's where <clears throat> horror and science fiction and and everything seems to have shifted not the idea of the hero overcoming but seeing if <clears throat> anybody is going to survive and that's what zombies are about they're not about um surviving they're about they're not about winning because you can't win a zombie apocalypse there's only, there's only one movie I can think of where they win, which is World War Z, where they win eventually. But generally, you don't win a zombie problem. Mm. You just survive it a little bit longer. Yeah. Well, you don't win in late-stage capital, capitalism either. No. You don't yeah. win in late-stage capitalism. You, um, you just survive <laughs> just for as long as you can. You just make it to your next rent payment. <laughs> and that's kind of... It's inter so it's interesting that this idea of, of heroes trying to overcome obstacles um, is no, long, no longer seen to be part of our psyche. The hero um, surviving their antagonist seems to be um, all the hero is now trying to do. Well, maybe that's just the first step in the unraveling of the sort of rivalrous dynamics of a, of a win-lose global culture. You know, that's, that's the first step unraveling that uh, you know in the end there can be no winner in um, a reality that is about 
interdependent systems that are all connected and um, <laughs> if one falls then then all fall in reality our society doesn't seem to have as when well, they talk about um winning still, but i don't think winning is is um kind of the game that any of us are playing anymore sure the the, the um the billionaires are winning but even they are living in constant terror of somebody wiping out their business there's a kind of a, there's a concept that started in the in the late 80s, early 90s, and people in fiction and in music and poetry and movies, this idea that the more you have, the more you're watching over your shoulder for someone to come and try and take it off you. And, this, and that again, mm. even so there's even this idea that the people who have everything and um, are not living without fear. And what we think about that, like the idea that, you know, even someone like Mark Zuckerberg, one of the wealthiest people on earth, he's probably watching over his shoulder waiting for someone to try and take it off him. And mm. I don't personally want to live with that sort of fear, which is why when um, there's discussions about someone, you know, for example, someone's book might sell better than mine or somebody might do better than me or something, my first response is, well, good, good luck to them or, like, why do I care? Mm. I, I, I'm mm. doing my thing. And if my thing does well, then my thing does well. If my thing does badly, my thing does badly. Um, I, don't, I, I don't like this idea that you... That you have to that society has to be so constantly antagonistic i think that's what it is we don't have mm, mm. we don't seem to in our real world have protagonists anymore we only have antagonists we only have people trying to we don't have this concept in our society that people are trying to that people are neutral to us or that people are trying to help us everyone in our society seems to think that everyone's trying to stop them everyone's their enemy yeah. and i don't want to i don't want to live life that way yeah but then that's um that's what's happened with identity too, and Lily might be able to speak to this. You know, with um our identity has changed with these new narratives. Um and even the concept of identity itself, it's more that idea of being identitarian. So your identity, you know, is about um a a, a group identity where you know, there are others uh, like you or being your allies and that, you know, that forms one team and must go to war with another team. So your identity is bound up in the rivalry that you have with other groups, you know. So if you are on the left of politics, that's your identity and you must, you must be uh, low punching those Nazis on the right, you know. And if you're on the right, then you must be, um, what do they call it? Something that lives. Um, <laughs> can't remember there's a verb anyway they do something to libs i can't remember what it's called either own the lips. yeah yeah own own the lips yeah i like talk about that they talk about so much the idea of doing something to own the libs that has become a running joke yeah. on social media like oh yeah dying of a deadly disease to own the libs <laughs> like, yeah yeah and it's, because the the facts don't lie the facts don't care about your feelings yeah, that one's good. So, yeah, our yeah. Or your lungs, apparently. Well, yeah. But the thing is, our society's got this real... I think the kind of antagonistic, adversarial nature of, of a lot of our society has spread into our day-to-day -day lives a little bit too much. Um, and I think a lot of the identity stuff at the moment, it seems to be leading along, the, kind of along this idea that there's a certain amount of pie left for blackfellas to take. 
And if you take if someone mm. takes some of the pie, then you then you don't get as much of the pie. Um, and yeah. I, I just hate that idea. I just I just hate that sort of adversarial idea. I'd rather make the pie bigger. You know, mm. rather than say, oh, and more black fellas in my you know people. Some people from my point of view would say um, more black fellas writing would mean more people to spread the slice of the pie among. But I, my attitude is every black fellow who starts writing is adding to the pie, mm. making the pie bigger. Mm. In reality, we're not, when, when, if we do do it right, we're not competing with each other for the resources of the, of the book sales or whatever. We're competing with the colony. If we do it right, mm. we don't have to fight amongst ourselves. We should be working to, um, to, to um, create more for everybody. And, th- and that's mm. one of the things that really bothers me. Mm. We're always we're fighting each other in order to, I don't know, gain the position of protagonist in these, um, in these sort of murderous narratives. You know, so I mean, the, the narrative that the dominant culture has for marginalized people, for vulnerable people, particularly indigenous peoples, that main narrative was is you know that you can uh, you can shine as either as the first of your tribe or the last of your tribe. Yeah. You know. Oh, so she's the first indigenous science fiction writer. <laughs> yeah. You know, or you know, or she's the last of her tribe. She's the last one who can speak her language, and she'll take it to the grave with her. You know, it's some. Um, but all of those narratives in the end are narratives of death narratives that are expressing a death wish, you know, a hope for the final solution for a final annihilation. And I think that this is getting a bit dark, Lily. It is. <laughs> I, I think, but we'll put it on a, on a kind of, bring it up on a more cheery note. There's no, there's absolutely no reason why every, everybody who has um, gotten through the door in, mm. um, you know, in, into the, um, kind of cultural business landscape, for example, every art, there's no reason why every artist who gets art and art gallery or every writer who gets published or every average curator, mm. they don't have to go through and close the door and then barricade and mm. say, no, I'm in here now. Um, I always, I'm a firm believer in, you know, if, some, if the door opens a crack, you push your shoulder in, force it open and pull the, pull the whole door off and let everyone mm. in. Uh, like in other words, I'm not. I'm. I as a as an artist, I don't want to hold everyone back from entering my market just in case someone's better than me. Mm. Which yeah. is inevitable. Inevitably, no matter how good you art something, someone will turn up who's better. That's one of the inevitable things you have to face. There mm. always is someone who sells more books or does better art or wins more awards. That's that's an inevitability. But mm. I don't believe in trying to hold them off. I believe in in making space for more people. Yeah, um, because. I think, you know, in a way, trying to stop people from, from being involved to make yourself stronger just cheapens yourself. Mm. And I don't, I don't, I don't believe in it. Which is one of the reasons that um, people who that get really irritated by the the crab bucket metaphor. I'm sure you mm. you all know the crab bucket metaphor, which means you try and lift a crab out, the other crabs hold on to it and let it leave. And when people talk about the crab bucket metaphor, I say, I'm not a crab who gets um, holding people down when they get lifted out. I'm the crab who's been lifted out and is not trying to not be pulled back, but instead I'm trying to pull people up out of the bucket. 
Mm. You know, when I, if I'm a crab being lifted out of a crab bucket, I want to reach down with my claw and grab the nearest other crab in the hope that when I'm lifted out of the crab, that someone else come with me and they hold someone to lift them out of the bucket as well. Let's empty the bucket. Not me. I'm firmly attached to the scrotum of the guy that's carrying the bucket. Just giving it a good squeeze. <laughs> Drop that bucket. My mob's in there. <laughs> like, yeah, like I said, Tyson, you're, if, if you're a bad dog. <laughs> I am a bad dog. Hey, hey, Lily. So, in the story of your life, yeah, what is, what is your, what is your identity? So, is your identity based on what the world thinks of you, or what your community thinks of you, or what you think of you? I think it's more what uh, or all of those things. What's the order of those things? Uh, priority for you? It's more what I think I am and what my identity is. I feel like that's very important for everyone. Cause like as an Aboriginal woman, that is really my identity and what I kind of express to the world. And then other the world and other people can take that and be like, oh yeah, this is mm. really this is what. She wants to be known as and you know promote if you know what i mean um but mm. like identity is very important and i feel like what claire was saying like bringing people along with you not stopping them is very important as it provides more representation for people especially in indigenous mm. communities um with you know white settlers and that like a lot of culture and tradition was lost and to kind of promote that and mm. really, and even like um, trying to educate non-Indigenous people along with promoting our own culture for our identities, having people respect us and what we identify with is very important as well. So, I mean, like mm. what we identify with is the most important and then other people like communities and the world have to respect that. Mm. Um, I, I don't have time to curate my own story for people and go, oh, yeah, here's all the little markers of my story. So you can understand, you know, um, why the Joker blew up that hospital or whatever. It's just like, nah, I got no time for that. <laughs> I, I only care what my pack thinks about me. Yeah. But see, yeah. now I'm here with you and I kind of care what you care what you think about me as well. So. Like I care what other people think of me, like I do. And I feel like communities and what you're surrounded by really does shape your identity. It's just what you choose to be surrounded by and what you decide mm. who you, you were going to be as a person. Like the world does influence that, but really it's up to mm. you to decide you know, who you're going to be. Yeah. All right. So how do, we, how do we cope when the world has the wrong story about you? when um when thousands of people out there maybe or hundreds or whatever or all the people in in your school or class or group where they have a wrong story about you and they think wrongly of you um how do you get through that how do you get through that with your identity intact i mean like it'll be hard because other people have this perception of you which you don't want to other people to perceive um i mean you can always correct people respectfully be like oh no you have a misunderstanding or 
whatever it is but again you've kind of just got to be like that's not who I am as a person and move on I guess like, which is very difficult and I have difficulty doing mm. that people have think differently of me of what I perceive myself as um mm. again you've got to you know, yourself and be like okay people are going to think this way of me you can't really do too much about it other than you know believe in yourself and know that I am what I am and this is what mm. my identity is and if people perceive that as differently than you then you can't do too much about it mm. I, in in all the in in the decades of my life I've discovered a couple of things about about identity one is we all change all the yeah, time. it's changing. Yeah. Const- identities are constantly changing and morphing, mm. and, morphing and growing. Sometimes through mm. choice, sometimes because it just happens. But, and also, I think, I don't think we can really expect somebody else to understand yeah. who we are or identity. But I think it's not unreasonable to expect other people to respect our identities. Yeah. And if somebody if somebody tells you who they are in good faith, I don't think it's. It, I don't think it's difficult to accept who they say they are, and treat them with the respect. Yeah. They uh, that kind of they they deserve just of just the simple respect of, of at least. Um, pretending to care how someone identifies, or or at least giving. Even if it's just lip service, even if you only say you care, it, it's amazing the the impact people, um, what people say about someone's identity can have on someone's sense of self. For example, if a um, if a um, white completely white skinned blue eyed blonde person is Aboriginal and tells and tells somebody that identity. If it was done in good faith, if they if they are actually Aboriginal, if they um, I'm not talking about people who fake being Aboriginal, but genuine Aboriginal people who don't look Aboriginal. Yeah. No matter who someone is, it doesn't really cost them anything to respect that. It's yeah. not, it, I, I don't understand, it's, it's respecting what someone says about themselves is actually not difficult. It, ta- it takes actual energy and effort to disrespect what someone says about themselves. You actually have to be going out of the way to be a bit of a dick to not respect mm. someone's identity. Yeah, I, I, I get that all the time with these furries. You know, I keep getting furries coming up to me and saying, I'm a puppy, I'm a puppy. And I'm like, yeah, good boy. Just like that. You know, it doesn't take much. It's not much oh, of an effort. And, and conversely, when somebody as a joke comes up with a fake identity, like those people on the internet who say that they attack helicopters, for example, that, that was a, mm. a few years ago when, when men say they identify as an attack helicopter to make a point. The, of course, the, the easiest way to deal with that problem is also respect their identity and put and remind them that a tech helicopters neither speak or can use a typewriter. Mm. So, so it's like, yeah. well, if you're an attack helicopter, then fine, go be an attack helicopter and get off Twitter. I mean, you really, that's the kind of the, the only, only correct response. Say, oh, yes, I respect your identity as a helicopter or I respect your identity mm. as a, um, a tree, but really, can trees tweet? Look, you know, I, I didn't know you were um, arborophobic, Claire. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, no, I, 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 I'm, really... I've got some really good free friends. I'm but... going to have to call you out on that. I'm going to have to push back on that a little. 
I talk to trees all the time and they talk back, but I also really? pee on trees. So, yeah, they actually like, trees like... need trees need our pee and trees have evolved uh, to need uh, the pee of um, many animals, but including humans. And, you know, in these places in the landscape where humans are no longer inhabiting those landscapes, they're in their houses and and flushing their pee out into the ocean. Um, there's dieback happening in those places because those trees need uh, need to be peed on. So, um, yeah, I encourage everybody don't hug a don't hug a tree. Don't hug a tree. Pee on a tree. If I could speak cat, I'd be asking the cats what they think of humans flushing their poo down the toilet. Um, I learned um, years ago that the reason cats bury their poo is because only the dominant cat gets to have their poo on there, uh, like, to not hide their poo. That's it. Um, but then humans hide their poo as far as you can hide it away. So hmm. does that mean they they think they're... Do, do cats look at that and think that humans are, in fact, the least dominant animal in, in animals in hmm. the landscape? Because hmm. we hide our poo in another, another suburb. Hmm. And so is that why cats don't mind enslaving humans? Yeah, exactly. Cats have a contract with humans and, and the humans did not read the fine print. So they really, they pulled a Swifty there. <laughs> they like the boss of every house. But look, and that, but that's domesticated cats. Here's the thing. Um, yeah, uh, undomesticated dogs, so basically wolves, you know, what happens, uh, what happens with wolves where, where they poo? Uh, they poo in very strategic places. And uh, so you can always tell in places where there are wolves or dingoes or wild dogs, you know, um, undomesticated canines. Um, you can always find the game trails in relation to their poo because they poo in the places where the air currents are going to blow and uh, direct the game into certain places. So the, so dogs actually create the game trails. And the desire lines that the uh, that the animals they eat follow, and create it with their poo, because those animals will, uh, will follow, and so they follow the air currents. But they're designed in a certain way to make sure that along those game trails, that the air currents will always be blowing a certain way, and the game trails will follow that, so that the scent will not never get to the animals. You'll be always be upwind, you know, when you come to that place. It's very clever. I, I think it's. Um, to go off on a, on a bit of a random tangent here, I think it's time as, as a species that humans dispense with the idea that somehow we domesticated dogs. In reality, and dogs didn't domesticate humans either, in reality, um, humans and dogs biologically formed what's called a, a mixed hunting pack. Where humans and dogs had an, a, a pack working together as equals to increase their success, hunting success. I think that is how we should be looking at dogs. We didn't domesticate wolves. Wolves one day said, hey, these humans are good at hunting. We're good at hunting. Let's work together. Mm. Um, I, I, do know this, um, I do know this fellow who uh, he was looking at um, uh, something for a Stone Age carving from Europe um, of a horse. And this was dated to, you know, tens of thousands of years before the domestication of the horse. And there were these little marks on the horse, like these little uh, dots in these strange places on the horse. And he decided to try something out. And he went to his own horse and he pressed on his horse in those places. Now, the carving of the horse, the statue of the horse was standing in a very unusual position. 
And he found that when he pressed the horses on those pressure points, the horse relaxed and moved itself into that position, stood there like that. Now, this was before the domestication of the horse. So this would indicate to me that humans for a very long time have had a, um, have had a very close relation um, with animals pre-domestication. Well, it, we, we formed mixed hunting packs with our species. We had mixed hunting packs before, just for colonization. Um, our peoples have formed mixed hunting packs with dolphins. Yeah. Dolphins did it. Yeah, you know, mix a mixed pack with dolphins. We, mm. so the dolphins would would, um, that the story says that the the dolphin singer would sing a song. The dolphins would, would drive the fish in. Someone would spear the fish, mm. and the dolphin and the fish trying to escape from the human standing in the water would go back to the dolphin's mouth. So both mm. sides caught more fish that way. In Africa, there's a species of bird that will fly out to a human and then make a certain noise and show the human where the where a honey tree is, because a mm. bird likes honey. But he's not got the um, not got the tools to crack open a tree. Because uh, the, the honey is, and then the human cracks open the trees and shares shares the honey. So we've been doing this sort of thing with animals for humans and animals. We've been doing that sort of communication and that sort of working together for far longer than domestication. And mm. I think the the, the I, I I personally think that that. Um, it, I think we've we've seen ourselves too much as a protagonist in human animal relationships, mm. rather than it being a mm. a mutual mutual obligation to each other. This damages your identity, Lily. You're a saltwater girl, so that dolphin story would would mean something to you. So, what what's the impact on on people's identity if you're um if you are having human and non-human packs? Uh, hunting or fishing together and cooperating together um, uh, in harmony. If your identity is indeed um, constructed and built by your pack, what happens when there are different species in your pack? How does that influence your identity and how, what's the role of story in that for you as a saltwater girl? Yeah, like, I mean, everyone has gets different things out of that, I think, but where I'm going is like it can make you more open-minded and especially if you're working with different species like you were saying um you know helping not only us as humans but the animals in the natural world as well um with all these issues I mean it's a bit difficult that question because everyone mm. has different ideas True. and it affects everyone differently but I guess it makes you mm. more open-minded that's what I would get out of it. Mm -hmm. Like not considering just yourself, but other people and beings as well. Well, it's, um, this is the thing though. It's, um, I think story is the cultural tool uh, yeah. that makes adaptation happen um, for the identity of a group, um, of a species, of a pack, or of a pack with mixed species. You know, it's those uh, different species coming together. I think that it's the story in there that is the cultural technology um, that creates the identity. And as Claire said, that identity is always in flux. It's always changing and moving. People strongly these days have a biological identity. The idea is that they, they inherit genes from, from you know a male and a female and that these genes come together and that you're born with it and then that's your fate. That's your doom, that's your destiny. Whatever genes you're born with, 
that will just uh, play out like software, play out like a computer program, and you can't do anything about that. Um, but the fact is, it's not about that at all. Uh, you're constantly in a state of adaptation. Epigenetics is about which genes are activated throughout your life at different times, because the genes, different genes uh, can be activated and deactivated at different times in response to your environment, in response to your culture. So it's actually, um, it's more determined by your land and your relation in the land, your relationship with the land and others, human and non-human around you. And, um, and the big contexts and disasters and temperature and everything happening around you uh, is constantly um, activating and deactivating different genes. So yeah, that's a really interesting field of epigenetics. It's nice to know that you're not stuck with what you're born with, that your identity is something that's made for you by, I don't know, um, science or God or a demon or something before you've even you know, started to live your life. It's nice to know that you have, you know, that your adaptive responses to what's going on around you have some impact on how you express yourself, your biological identity evolves over time. It's kind of related to the to the um, biological concept of the genotype versus phenotype. Genotype mm. is, is your genetic fate, so to speak. Mm. But phenotype is in in like biological morphology, um, how that genotype has expressed. So, in other words, someone could have the genotype of, of a thin person, but actually, mm. or they could have the genotype of being tall and be malnourished, and end up with a phenotype of being short. So the mm. It's kind of related to that as well because um, years ago, um, people used to believe that you were, your entire existence was linked to your genotype, to your genetics. But at some point, people realized that doesn't that not that genes don't express like the epigenetic idea. And the difference between your genetics and the epigenetic response of your body to your genetics is the difference between genotype and phenotype. And maybe a lot of people in our society don't understand that there's a difference between genotype and phenotype. You don't always match your genetics at all, not, not in, in so many ways. Mm. Mm. You know, it's funny. I don't know if you've heard of the GPT-3 uh, artificial intelligence uh, application yet and the latest things that it can do. But basically, you can, um, you can just use your voice uh, to instruct this AI um, to write code for you, to make you pretty much anything you like. So you can say, well, make me a, uh, make me a video game where I'm in a spaceship, going through space, and, you know, there's uh, big blue aliens coming at me. It's like, no, 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 scratch that. Make them red, red aliens. I want red aliens. Um, and it'll do it, and you can see on the side of the screen the code. It's writing code for you and making you that thing as you speak. Now, if you combine that with CRISPR, now CRISPR is the, um, it's pretty much the same thing, but for gene editing. So you could actually go in and edit your genes or you can create a, uh, you can create cells or uh, viruses or bacteria that do certain things. You can create a puppy, like right now for $10,000 for a, you can get a CRISPR set up in your shed, um, that will help you to um, grow. You, you can actually breed glow in the dark chihuahuas. So your dog, you can have a dog that you can read by, you know, because you can uh, edit bioluminescence into their flesh. 
Um, CRISPR is a pretty terrifying thing if you think about all the things that might be done with that. And it makes uh, it by any maniac who wants to create a, a, a pandemic or anything they want to do. Um, you could do that at the moment. So you imagine if you combine those two technologies, Lily. So if you were standing in front of your um, uh, GPT three slash CRISPR uh, machine, and you could just talk to it and say, "Hey, <laughs> um, Siri, make me dot 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 dot." What would you change about yourself? I don't know. That concept is very scary. Like, it is. In my opinion. Um, so like you said, you Would don't know you what to change do. anything. I don't think so. No, like maybe my intelligence, so I can make myself smarter. Um, or better there at something. Go. Um, but no, not anything crazy or out of the blue that would significantly impact hmm. mankind which I think some people would do. Mm. It would change your identity though. Yeah. Just, just having the ability to do that, even if you refuse to do it, just yeah, the existence of such a thing changes your identity. It's kind of related to one of the, the less thought about um, paradoxes in or concepts in time travel. You know, people talking about going back in time and, and like so with the idea of I'm saying, oh, I wish that this thing had never happened to me. But then if, but then if, then everything from that moment would be different to what it is now. If you could edit your own genetics, I think there's a good chance that you would that that you don't really want things to be the way you think you want them to be. Like someone who might think they want to be smarter may find out about becoming smarter that they're less happy. Because, because frankly, um, I don't know if I know very many super smart people who are happy about it. In mm. the end, I think a lot of super smart people I know are quite miserable about their intelligence or about knowing too much. So I, I think there's always a risk if you if you try and edit any part of your self, be it your personality or your genetics or your history, mm. the mm. chances are you might not like the result. Well, and you you can't. You can't even begin to understand the knock-on effects of changing right. uh, the, your genes, but also the gene pool in that way. So if you're if you're an African living in Africa, and you have uh, sickle cell anemia, which is a genetic condition, um, you might want to edit that out so that the, so that you no longer have that illness, that inherited genetic illness um, that you find. Um, uh, through a lot of populations right through through Africa. But the problem with that is that um, in most people, that gene is recessive. And when the gene is recessive for sickle cell anemia, then it makes you pretty much malaria proof. So what would happen then if you edited that gene out, um, you're not really understanding that then a mosquito will bite you and you will die. <laughs> but even worse, that if you have children, then basically you're dooming all of your people to die of malaria and not to be able to resist that anymore. So you haven't thought it through. And arguably, no single person or, or even a government agency or a science lab could ever think through all of those things. That's correct. So um, my message would be just bloody leave it alone because you don't know.
I am generally pro-science. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of science. I'm not a fan of, of something like um, biotechnology or genetic engineering. Some systems are too complicated or too complex for us to know mm. how to mess with them. So we shouldn't. We, we should not mess with things that are more complicated than, than, we, are, than we are capable of understanding. So this weird little story I picked for Claire because it's a bit sci-fi, this one. So basically, you've got a man who's walking in a swamp and a very unique sort of combination of, of, of a storm and swamp gas sort of happens all at once. So the man gets struck by lightning and completely obliterated. Every single atom just burnt up and dissipated, destroyed, distributed right through the system. Gone. He's completely gone. But by this weird freak occurrence, there is a lightning strike at exactly the same time, um, you know, about 500 meters away. And every single one of those man's atoms is reassembled. It's not the same atoms, actually, but the man are like exactly the same man is recreated in that lightning strike. It's from different atoms, but he's created back exactly the same way. He has all of his memories. Um, of his entire life, he still knows everything that he's always known. He knows everything about himself. He looks exactly the same. He's wearing even exactly the same clothes. And the question of this thought experiment is, would that man, would he still be him? I mean, he might be slightly different. Like he's the same person, the same form, but that experience would have affected his identity. I mean, mm. kind of died and then came back to life again, really. <laughs> but I don't think he is the same person because experience shape people's identities. And um, mm -hmm. like what I mentioned before, identity is kind of forever changing. It's not just like one solid thing that just kind of stays the same. Mm. Yeah, that's my so Claire, are, are you just this pattern and this, this collection of molecules? I've got, if that could be replicated with all of your experiences and, and your mind, would that still be you? I've got, I've got two answers there. They're, one's, they're both a bit philosophical. One's kind of my own first instinct, which is if, if that, that swamp man, when reappearing, believed in himself as the same person, particularly if he wasn't aware of being that small place or another by being exploded, um, of course it's the same person, because if he believes in the same person, who, who is anyone to argue with who he is? Um, mm. the, 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 the sense of who you are, we, we really, we, can't, we cannot even philosophically prove that we exist. We, no, we can. Mm. We exist, but not that the world does. And you can prove you exist. You think about it, you're having thoughts, coming back to Descartes, I think that's where I am. You're having a thought now, therefore you can prove you exist because this thought exists has become somewhere. But none of you can prove I exist. So there's, a, there's that. You can't, you can't prove I exist by any empirical means because as far as you know, everything you get is, is from your senses and, and your senses could be wrong. So you could be believing I exist because it's in your senses, but your senses could be faulty. It's, so people call it the brain in a jar thought experiment, which is if you put, how do you, not, how do you know you're not a brain in a jar right now being fed stimulus? And of course that's covered in the movie, The Matrix, the same idea. How do you know you're not box being fed stimulus? So well, shared experience. If I bit you, I'd feel myself biting you, and you would feel yourself being bit, and we could both agree on that. But I would, but I would not know. Therefore, 
that the you telling me that you agree on that is real. That's the thing, because you only I've only got your words for it. But you've only got you've only got you've always got your own word for yourself. So if this one man is blasted away and appears somewhere else, if if to, if to his sense of self he's the same person, then of course it is because there's no evidence otherwise. That's mm. that's thought that's response one. Response two is scenario that's scenario A, Lily. Hold no, that one in your head. And number two is um the it comes down to the, the the kind of the thought the other thought experiment, which is I don't know if you've heard of it, which is my, my grandfather's shovel. I don't know if you've heard of this one. Like my mm-hmm. grandfather gave I inherited a shovel from my grandfather. Ten years later, the blade rusted off, so I replaced it. Twenty years later, the handle rotted away and I replaced it. Is it still my grandfather's shovel? Oh, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And that's a, that's an old thought experiment. The, it's the same thought experiment. Mm-hmm. And so from that thought experiment, the idea is that it's it's the it's a an item's position in your life that makes what it is. If mm. you if if to you you've replaced the blade in your grandfather's shovel, it's to my mind it's still your grandfather's shovel because you replaced mm. the blade. If you replace the handle of your grandfather's shovel, you've replaced the handle, but it's still your grandfather's shovel. If you place the whole thing at once, but there's continuity of form. It hasn't been replaced all at once. It's been replaced part by part over time, pretty much like your body, your liver uh, replaces itself every seven years, but your skin replaces itself every seven bloody weeks or something, you know, something like that, yeah. so um, and, and you're still you. And you're still you. And, um, and it, is it, there's a fairly high empirical chance that the atoms that um, were in me five years ago could be in you now. Oh, yeah. So from that point of view, all we have, we've got electrons, electrons that could be bouncing back and forth between us as we speak. So mm. the only thing, the only thing that we can, the only um, thing we have really is our empirical sense of identity. Mm. Really. So from that point of view, of course, if someone is zapped away and then zapped somewhere else with this, with their memories and feelings and personality attack, they must be the same person because empirically to their internal life, they obviously are. Mm. Mm. And see, without that story of self, then everything just dissolves into a quantum soup and nothing's real and nothing's true. So you got to draw the line somewhere and maybe that's a narrative line and maybe that's why stories are important for identity. Lily, scenario A. It means you don't get to dodge it because as Claire said, he had no uh, recollection of being struck by the lightning. He was just... Uh, replicated at that moment and had no memory of that so the lightning strike did not affect his uh his image of himself or anything he just kept walking i mean so he's unaware that he's been replicated completely and he's a completely different set of cells and atoms and uh he's unaware that that change has happened is he still him yeah Yeah. i mean he was there for the lightning struck but he doesn't remember it so did Mm. it actually happen obviously he's still the same person Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, if he doesn't remember it, then I guess he might be the same person. It's not not part of the story of his life. Yeah. No story, no change to identity, maybe. Yeah. All right, that's scenario A. Now, what about the shovel? The shovel. Mm. Ooh, the shovel. That's a hard one because, like, it's been replaced, but, like, over time, it's not like the original hmm. thing. 
But I guess this and the, sho- the shovel isn't sentient enough to have a story of itself. No. Mm. But like, I guess the, the man remembers, like, he remembers things, like, all these memories go back. So, like, mm. that part of himself is still there, just kind of like the atoms and what makes him up as a human has changed, I guess. But he's still in the same but, form. So it's like. But your grandfather's sweat is no longer in the wood. I know. Blood from his blisters is no longer there. You know, it no longer carries him. I've just replaced the engine and the gearbox in my car. Well, I didn't do it. Someone else did. They replaced Mm. the whole engine and the whole gearbox, which is all the running gear in my car, has been replaced. Um, It's still the same car. It's still the same rego. Now, if in 10 years' time it rusted out, I replaced the whole body, it'd also still be legally... And improve mm. my experience, the same car. Mm. Even though it's not, it doesn't have the same engine. To me, it's the same car. I remember this car, it's my car. Now, how many parts can you place on a car before it's a different car? Uh, Herbie Goes Bananas is the movie you have to watch for that. <laughs> or read Carrie by Stephen King. <laughs> Which, not Carrie. I was thinking carry as in car, carry. No, what's the what's the car one <laughs> with the haunted car? Christine. Christine, that's right. I don't know some girl's name. Um, no, some girl's name, and always about yeah. something. But this brings me to what we're dancing around here, which is spirit. You know, yeah. now we we've talked about our biology being part of our identity. We've talked about our narratives being part of our identity. We've talking about what those around us believe about us being part of our identity. We've talked about our land, our place, our environment being part of our identity. But what about spirit? You know, if all those other things are in flux constantly and changing and your identity is shifting, do you have one thing? Is there one inalienable eternal part of you um, that is spirit? And that uh, basically, if you got hit by lightning in the in the swamp and then reformed half a second later over there, that spirit would have gone from you. And how could you any longer be you? It's like um, you know, your grandfather's sweat is no longer in the wood of the shovel. So how can it be your grandfather's shovel? I guess that sweat and blood, in that metaphor, is like the spirit in the swamp swamp man metaphor. I, I'm I don't. I'm, I find it hard to even be convinced that there, there is something beyond our physical self and our story on which to identify. I, I don't, I, I'm, not con, I'm not convinced for Dan, I never have been, well, not for 20 years at least, that there is such a thing as a spirit or a soul. Um, something that, um, some, you know, the, to use the, the metaphor, the, um, the phrase from Arthur Costa, I'm not convinced there is a ghost mm a self beyond beyond um what can be proven to exist i have read i've read um in one of your stories though about a man who's going back who's very determined he's dying and he's very determined to get back to his land to his country and die there so his spirit can get back into the land and i i just can't believe what you're saying right now because i know you feel that from the way you wrote that story, I know you're somebody who's experienced that connection of spirit with country Absolutely. and that feeling, that knowledge that you're coming from the land, that you have spirit in you that's come from your I, place. I, I believe, I, I do believe there. in a 
in a um, a connection to the to the land, um, and a connection to that that one. I, I do feel that connection to to country to yourself, mm. but I, I I'm not can hundred percent certain in myself what that connection is made of. Mm. Um, whether it's made of a thing called soul, or whether someone can have, for example. Um, I'm, I'm sometimes, I sometimes imagine, I'm, there's no other example, I sometimes imagine that having been in, associated with one place each mob for tens of thousands of years like we have been in our people, like we've basically had the longest land, um, land continuity of any people on earth. Mm. Could it not be possible that over that length of time, we have actually evolved a genetically inbuilt connection to our land? Hmm. In, our, in our brain wiring is it not possible that our our genotype of our brains contains a physiological new, neurological connection to our ancestral country because we have hmm. been there so long and the people who cannot feel their country um are not um were um had an were at an evolutionary disadvantage and and hmm. were able to and got out evolved by the people who did feel like mm. they could read country. Um, that it could be that. I'm not con so well, I'm the, convinced that such things are soul, but I'm convinced there's such thing as a um, a soul-like thing that might connect us mm. to where we belong. Well, this is the the, uh, the the Cartesian split thing between mind and body that's always there. So um, it, it's the same as the idea that uh, thought is produced by the biology of your brain and the chemistry of your brain. It's produced from the physical world, yeah. and yet thought itself is non-physical. Yeah. And um, it's not sure, chicken and egg, which is producing which. Are thoughts non-local and, and of spirit or of something that's not tangible and producing a biological or chemical reaction, or is it the other way around? What is the uh, mechanism mm, through which thought and ideas and knowledge translate themselves into the hardware of um, flesh and rock and sky. And, and I think that's, that's one of the great unsolved mysteries of the human existence and may be in fact mm. the last unsolvable mystery because there is no, I don't think there's a way to solve Well, Lily, Lily, as your father's daughter, I know you have thoughts on this. Your, your father refers to um, uh, dreams as travels, where he understands himself to be traveling in spirit to different places. Um, yeah, and he understands, uh, he has some very particular understandings of these things. Have you, have you inherited any of that knowledge? Um, actually, like, I do believe that people have spirits and, you know, there's like a soul in that, but I'm still kind of exploring my own beliefs and mm. what I identify with, I guess. Like, I feel like my culture has kind of influenced that a bit with like ancestral beings and mm. the spirit going back to the land. But oh, no, it's, it's very confusing. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And you, look, your dad's too much of a gentleman. You know, that's a, he, he should have flogged these ideas into you like they were flogged into me. I tell you, otherwise they just won't go in. That Cartesian divide, it's, it's, it bloody has us doubting things. <laughs> but look, I've got to say that in my way, you know, in my culture, um, 
if that happened to a person in the swamp, you know, which is where black magic happens and sorcery happens, the swamp you don't want to go there, that's where it all happens. Um, especially that tea tree swamp, that's a terrible place. And you gotta you make sure you're with people when you go there, otherwise they'll get you. Um yeah, but what would have what would happen there is that that person would then be referred to as a living ghost. And we have stories about that, uh, warning us that you never go to sacred sites, you never go to story places alone. Because if you're there, something very similar to the Swamp Man can happen to you, whereby your spirit is captured and it's kept in that place. Um, and then you become what we refer to as a living ghost, which uh, brings us back to the zombie thing again. Um, so you're somebody walking around, you know, and the body is there, but uh, but the spirit is not. My my first instinct in most thing, most things um, is towards atheism, for the most part. But um, of course, I can, it's easy to philosophically and empirically dismantle the idea of a an all seeing godlike being in our society. That's easy to um, use logic to completely dismantle that idea. So long as it's set up, what is harder to dis to dismantle is um, is indigenous or Aboriginal spirituality and and the sense of connection to country, which seems to be unrelated to any idea of a of a um, of an outside um, godlike entity, and yet seems to have some sort of connection of a spiritual point of view. So I swing wildly between kind of believing in Aboriginal spiritualism and being a um, a hardline atheist. Swings wildly sometimes on a on a basis. Because I can't, I can't logically um, ignore this. The well, I can't ignore the, the sense of connection I have to country. Hmm. Um, I can't ignore that it's there, and the way I felt when I first went to my ancestral country. I can't ignore that. Hmm. And, um, logically, it it shouldn't by by the um. Well, the, of, your atheism atheism shouldn't get in the way of that, sis. No. Because, no, it should. You know, atheism is just is just a, re a refusal to believe in a deity. Yes. You know, that's what it's about. Theism is about believing in a god, a, in a god. you know, a big entity that is all seeing, omniscient, and you know, created everything and all that kind of thing. We don't have that in our no. way, but we do understand that that tree is sentient, that that tree has spirit, and that you know, if you are in your spirit, then you can communicate with the spirit of that tree. And I, you I, must, because I that tree is always communicating with you anyway. That tree is working for you and working on your spirit if you're living near it and around it. It's supporting you and helping you in that way. It's part of that energetic field that just is, you know. So you look at the resonance, you look at the resonances that happen for strange attractors, whereby patterns are replicated, even if they're not related. So there's a mole there's a mole in the northern hemisphere it's exactly identity identical to a marsupial mole that we have down here but they evolved completely separately they do not have a remote ancestor in common and they look exactly the same except for the the mole that we have here has a pouch now that form that shape has replicated exactly the same exactly the same design of those two things have come about in different hemispheres, even though they're not related. And there are plenty of things like this in the world uh, where these forms keep repeating. We understand that there is a pattern in spirit and that spirit drives the patterning of all things and drives the patterning of our bodies 
you know, even our minds, but particularly our communities and our ways of moving in the landscape. Um, this is spirit. And it's, um, it's measurable, but it's only measurable by its absence. It's absence. It's like dark energy. You can only measure it when it's not there. I suppose I, deep down I have no problem with the idea of spirit. But I don't know what mm. spirit is. And I don't think it is something that can be separated from or should be considered as separate from our physical selves. Mm. Um, or from our minds or from our story. I, I think... I think I, I, I prefer to see, well, I think it makes more sense to me to imagine the human experience as a completely integrated thing. We are mm. a thing, we have a mind, we have a story, we have a spirit, and it's all built into the atoms of our bodies. Mm. Well, look, there's that other Stephen King story, Pet Cemetery. And I got to tell you, I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery like the Ramones song goes. Um, that's where they were. They were. Um, they found out that if you buried pets in a certain place, that the pets would come back to life the next day and come home. But they weren't quite the same. They were a bit doopy and they were kind of mean. And this one guy um, buried his, his dead son there, his little kid, little toddler, buried him in the pet cemetery, brought him back to life. And that little one come back all zombie, a fast zombie. Killed them all. Yeah. Look out for that one. No more pet cemetery. No more swamp man. Thank you, one. It's wrong. <laughs> you can't uh, put that one back together. There's no way. Uh, you, you lose the spirit off a man. He's done. Anyway, that's that's where I would put it. I mean, the whole concept is very confusing. And like you said, the pet cemetery stuff, like, it's wrong. You don't really want mm. to do that. Um. I know, I'm just like very confused on which way to go, really. Like, is he the same person or not because his soul was, you know, not attached anymore? Like, it's a lot to think about. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's terrifying, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> to start to consider the yeah the idea that you might have a soul and that you could lose it i was talking to someone the other day who was telling me that his friend was friends with steve jobs and that steve jobs told him that he sold his soul to the devil wow yeah i think i think us and our if we have a soul i think it's indivisible from us mm. yeah I, I I don't I don't see it as something. I suppose that that makes it easier to not believe in a concept of heaven if our soul is indivisible from us. When we when we go, so does our soul, and that's that. Then away is a is a form mm. of If we die on country, our our atoms go back to country, and so does our soul. It's because it's indivisible from us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you could it could be argued the matter is spirit. Mm. And spirit is matter. Yep. 